If you are a parent, uh, you know how this works. You little kids, when they come home, just tiny, tiny babies from the hospital, when they're hungry, what do they do? They cry. When they're thirsty, what do they do? They cry. If they don't like their dirty diaper, what do they do? They cry. And then they learn words, and uh, moms, dads have competitions, don't you? Uh, will they say mama first or dada first? And so you have those competitions. And uh, whichever one they say first, when they're hungry, then that's what they say. Mama or dada, they, they, they call out. They cry out. The reason I begin with that very simple reality is that verse 21 is, is the hinge verse of this passage of Scripture. And this morning I am tasked with the very remarkable task of preaching a sermon. I am preaching Peter's sermon. Betty read just a portion of it. I'll walk through the rest of it. But I am preaching Peter's sermon. And in the middle of it, in verse 21, Peter says that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That calling upon the name of the Lord is not a technical term. It is akin to what a baby does when he is or she is hungry. And Jesus himself said, if you come to Jesus, you must have the faith of a what? Child. This childlike faith, this dependence, and this trust. So I want to tell you this morning that by, uh, when we finish, I'll ask you, if you've never trusted Christ, I will give you the opportunity to do that today as folks did in the early service, and you will have the opportunity to call out to, to cry out to God. Uh, Peter steps up and he begins to preach, and notice what he says. I, I preached a lot of sermons, never opened one with these words, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Then the sermon starts. Here's the first line. For these people are not drunk. That's the first line of the first sermon in all of Christianity. I, I just think you need to know that. There it is. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is the only, only the third hour of the day. Now, why does Peter say that? Look back at verse 13. When the Spirit fell on Pentecost, when that happened, uh, some believed, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. They have to be drunk. This, nobody in their right mind could speak out of their tongue a language they had never known, and others understand it. So Peter clears the air. I love the humor in that, the sarcasm that it is riddled with. But it's from Peter's sermon, this very first sermon, that we discover four reasons we should call upon the name of the Lord. Reason number one, call upon the name of the Lord because the last days are here. Peter says, verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, here comes the question. Is this yet to be or has it already happened? And the answer is yes. It has already happened and it is yet to be. It has already happened in the sense that there were men and women, 120 uh, gathered in the upper room, men and women who prophesied that God's spirit fell on them and they proclaimed, we discovered last week, the mighty works of God. God worked through them to proclaim to the known world representatives from all of these different places, God spoke through them. And it is yet to be. As we anticipate the return of Christ, God will continue to raise up men and women who will proclaim his mighty works. So how do we say then this is the last days? Peter said it, and that was 2,000 years ago. And perhaps some of you are saying, oh, Jerry, I, I just thought you might connect some recent events with the thought that the return of Christ is imminent. I could do that. I think there are events unfolding right now that are pretty dramatic. I think there are things that are happening in the world that are pretty amazing. But this isn't what Peter is referring to. Let me give you the simplest history, Christian history available. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, God created. We believe that. As followers of Jesus, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Fall. Adam and Eve fell into sin away from God. Redemption. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of Adam and Eve and all others who have fallen since them. All of us are sinners. All of us born into sin. God sent Jesus to redeem us, to buy us back from that sinful awfulness that characterizes our life. Regardless of how you believe, you may be an agnostic, you may be an atheist, you may be a nominal believer, you may be an onlooker, you struggle with sin. You wished that you hadn't said some things you've said, done some things you've done, been some places you've been to. You sit in the room this morning and you struggle with sin. And sin is what unraveled and then there's restoration. If this is God's grand history, phase one completed, phase two completed, phase three, Jesus died on the cross. That's a historical reality we're in the last days we're in restoration we're in where God steps in and raises up people and changes their lives and makes them into new people that those my friends are the days in which we live these are the last days in God's grand act in history restoration has already begun but this isn't all. Peter says one day some more cataclysmic things will happen. Look at verses 19 and 20. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. 
blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Creation, you may not have realized, responds to Jesus' coming every time. When Jesus was born, there was a star that moved and, 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 and settled over where he was. When Jesus died, the sky went dark. There was some sort of eclipse. There was darkness, darkness in the afternoon. And when he returns, notice what creation does. There's blood and fire, smoke, the darkening of the sun, the moon to blood. That day is sure to come, and it will be accompanied, if you read the book of Revelation, by these rather remarkable responses of the creation. The day of the Lord. That phrase, underlining in your Bibles, your journals, the day of the Lord almost always refers to the second coming of Christ. So Peter here goes future. Call on the name of the Lord because the last days are here. Call on the name of the Lord because Jesus came for you. Look at this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God do, did through him in your midst as you yourself know. Let's take P Peter's sermon just piece by piece. When he says a man attested, that little word attested is, is the word in, in Greek to refer to being appointed to an office. Peter is saying that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the long-anticipated leader, ruler of the Jews. How did God attest Jesus? With mighty works and wonders and signs. Now, works and wonders and signs. In the book of Acts, when you see the word wonders, it is always accompanied by signs. Every single time. Wonders do not stand alone. Why? Well, let's talk a bit about a sign. Now, I know this is hard to imagine, but some of you can because you're old. But back in the day when you went places, somebody drove on this side and somebody unfolded a map on this side of the car. Anybody ever done that? Yeah, back in the day, you didn't tell Siri where you were going and depend on her or him, however, that's, mine's an Australian dude. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't do that to get you to wherever you were going. You, you literally looked at maps, and maps had something called street names on them. All right, so roads and street names were on maps. And so you knew where you started and where you had to go. And somebody would read the map and they would say, turn on North Main Street, turn on Cranberry Avenue, whatever, right? That's how you got there. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you that a sign, a sign's only value is what it points to. Nobody cares about the sign. They want to know what it's pointing to, right? 
If you are hungry and you want some good food and you're driving down the road and let's say you're in Asheville and you want chicken, it's lunchtime, right? You guys are, why are you doing this to me? You look for Rocky's Hot Chicken Shack. That's, amen? Yes. That's where you go. Voted top 10 chicken places in the country. All right, so you look for that. You look for a sign. I've never gotten to Rockies and said, man, that was such a cool sign. No, I get to Rockies and say, this is some good chicken. You say, Jerry, what's your point? My point is this, that the signs and the wonders do not have value in and of themselves except that they point to Jesus. Don't miss that. If you go see the seven wonders of the world, you'll admire them. But if you see the wonders and signs in the book of Acts, you'll admire God. That's the point. This reality must become a litmus test for apparent signs and wonders today. How do you test what you see on television? How do you test what you watch on YouTube? How do you test it? When you're finished, does it attract attention to the pastor? Does it attract attention to the preacher? Does it attract attention to the ministry? Or do you think greater thoughts of Jesus when you're finished? The signs and the wonders in the book of Acts drew people in to see Jesus for who he was. So Peter goes there, verse 23, this Jesus this should be all of our ministries, our, our talk. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. All right, God sent Jesus to die. You should call on the name of the Lord because Jesus came for you. Look at that. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Big quote coming up, strap in, but it's good enough to conclude it all. Pole Hill, excellent commentary on Acts, says in the paradox of divine sovereignty and human freedom, Jesus died as the result of deliberate human decision made in the exercise of their God-given freedom of choice. They killed Jesus because they wanted to. That is true. The Jewish crowd at Pentecost could not avoid their responsibility in Jesus' death. Nonetheless, in the mystery of the divine will, God was working in these events of willful human rebellion to bring about his eternal purposes, bringing out of the tragedy of the cross the triumph of the resurrection. Romans 8, 32, Paul adds, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus came for you. God sent Jesus to die. But I love verse 24, the next statement in Peter's sermon. It is rich with meaning. God raised him up. Loosen the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, Peter uses an interesting word, the word pangs. 
It is never associated with death. So Peter rips this word off from its original association and applies it to the tomb. The word pangs is associated with birth. Birth pangs. That's the origin of the word. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying that the tomb was like a fully pregnant woman who is ready to give birth. That baby is coming out of that woman just like Jesus was going to come out of that tomb. That tomb could not hold him back any more than that baby's womb can hold that baby in. That's what Peter is saying. I love Bertram on this. He said, the abyss can no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold a child in her body. That tomb was pregnant, not with death, but with life. Call on the name of the Lord because Jesus came for you. He died for you. He resurrected for you. Number three, call on the name of the Lord because he really is Lord. Peter begins to quote David from the Psalms. He says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Think grave, they are not hell. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, Peter gives the Old Testament, and then he's going to give his commentary on it. Here's what's interesting. David wrote this, but this did not happen to him. David said, my flesh will dwell in hope. You will not abandon my soul to the grave. Yes. David died and rotted. He died. King David died. So who was he writing about? Peter will answer the question. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, Peter is hilarious. This is total tongue-in-cheek. I may say to you in confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So this can't be about him. Uh, David came, and he died, and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he, Jesus, was not abandoned to Hades, the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter said, that would about David. David died. It can't be about him. It's got to be about Jesus. This Jesus God raised up and of all that we are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. And some of you right now are going, what in the world does that mean? Well, he quotes David again. David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand so that I may make your enemies your footstool. And what is Peter going to say? That, that wasn't about David. David did not ascend. He descended. He died. 
So if David didn't ascend, and he's writing as if he did, then he must be writing about someone future who's going to ascend. And that future person who's going to ascend is none other than Jesus. The early church preached Christ from the Old Testament. So I ask us a question. It's a legit question. Why, how does Peter know all this? How does Peter know what he knows? Well, you can take the super spiritual answer. And I'm not denying it. And you can say, the Holy Spirit told him. Yes. Yes, of course he did. But the book of Acts opens with these statements. That Jesus died, resurrected, and he spent a period of 40 to 50 days with his apostles. What was happening during that time? Jesus is opening the old and preaching himself from the, from the old He's opening the Old Testament, and he's saying, Peter, this is me. Peter, when David says this, me. Peter, this is me. James, this is me. John, this is me. And the disciples are gathered around him, and this is the, the crash course of all times. It has to be the crash course of all times. Now, we've got several college students here. and I remember I, I, I was, uh, and remain, but was a total nerd in high school. Total nerd. Like, just just didn't know any better. At one point, I show up to my locker, and this is when the movie came out, which tells you how old I am. There was a massive Revenge of the Nerds poster on my locker door. All right? And so I was a total nerd. So much so that I was in calculus and loved it. And uh, so in calculus, loved it, did the homework. I'd work till about 10 p.m. at night on my job. I would come home, and if I couldn't figure out a problem, I didn't go to bed until I did. Sometimes 1, 2 a.m., I'm sitting at my kitchen table by myself hammering out the calculus problems. Now, as a total nerd, all the popular kids loved me. Why? Because at the lunch table, guess where they came? Calculus was fourth period. They'd come over to Jerry's table, right? They'd sit down want to do lunch with me. Yeah, right. All right, so here I sit, and I'm like, what do y'all want? Can you help us? Well, I guess I can. So I'd sit there. And being a free will Baptist, I wouldn't give him answers. Because that would send me straight to hell. No lie, on the spot. I ain't handing out answers. So what I do, I teach him. Just teach him. Right? I'd sit there through the whole lunch. We'd eat. I'd teach calculus, you know, so they could pass. They never spoke to me except at the lunch table. Did they use me? Well, yeah. Every day. Right? But it made me better at calculus. So I graduate, I go away to Wofford, and I land in an NC State professor's calculus class. So I'm there in his calculus class, and I discovered this awful thing. It was awful. That what I'd spent all my years in high school teaching, he covered in three weeks. <laughs> it was horrifying. I went, oh my. It was done. Like in three weeks, all of that stuff, I'm done with it. And then he begins... And he, he's smart, but he wasn't a good teacher. Like, you know, some professors are smart, but they can't teach. They're good at their subject. They just don't know how to teach it. And that was him. And I would sit there, and I'd be like, oh, little, little, I'm just not getting this. Well, from a kid who only made one grade that wasn't an A, since he can remember, by midterm, and back in the day we did midterms, and back in the day they sent them home. All right, so that's how it worked then. Midterms, go home to your folks. And my midterm was a, was a uh, D. Yeah, 
That's how I felt. And so it was a D, and I thought, I'm done. I, I'm just done. We had three tests in that calculus class. And honestly, it was like drinking water from a fire hydrant. I, I just can't catch up. I can't figure this stuff out. I'd study and I'd try and I was just no, nothing doing on the calculus front. Nothing at all. And so, so I took test one. I made a D on it. I took test two. I made a C on it. I took test three. I made a C on it. And so we had a final exam. And the final exam had three sections. And the three sections were on those three tests. So I thought, I don't know anything else to do. He hands out a study guide. You just study it. Like at that point, just study it. So I took it and I studied it. I studied it. As a matter of fact, I have a pretty decent memory. I memorized the thing. I went through. I memorized it. On the day that I was to have my calculus final, I also had a pre-med biology final. That was a whole other debacle. But uh, me, a doctor, is hilarious. But at any rate, I had a pre-med biology final. And so I went to my prof and I said, listen, sir, I've got Dr. Dobbs. You said his name. Everybody on campus knew what that meant. And I said, I got Dr. Dobbs' final on the same day as yours. He said, that's fine. i got another class. You can just take your final with that class. Now, he had a little rule. It was a great rule. And his rule was, if you do better on the final on that section, I'll replace your test score. Okay, so that's some grace, right, for us dumbos who thought we knew a lot. And so I go in to take my final in calculus. And I looked down and I realized the professor had made two practice tests. The one he gave to me in my other class was the one he gave to this class as their final. And I had memorized it. That's all I'd studied. So I go through. I made a 96. I replaced every one of those test grades and made an A in calculus. Yes, yes, I did, I did. I saw him on next semester. I'm walking across campus, and here he comes, and I'm giggling to myself. <laughs> and he said, that'll never happen again. <laughs> and under my breath said, only needed to happen once. <laughs> I'm good. Like, that's what I said, like underneath my breath. Why do I go into all that? For those 40, 50 days, that's how I felt the first three weeks of calculus. Jesus, Peter, the others. Bam, 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 bam. It just had to be just like that. And Peter remembers it. Now look what he says. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He, he was the Lord. Verse 31, he foresaw and, uh, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter saying, this is the Lord. This is the Lord. So what's, what's rough about this? This Jesus whom you crucified is whom you've read about forever from the book of Psalms. Look at this guy's picture on the screen. Some of you with your history may know him. His name is Pat Tillman. Pat played for the Cardinals. And in the aftermath of 9-11, the bombings, he, uh, he uh, left to go serve our country. He left a career to serve our country, and that he did. 
It was on April 22nd of 2004 that Tillman was in Afghanistan and he was killed in the line of duty. Immediately he was given a medal, but what was not discovered until later is that he was killed by his own people. Friendly fire, it's called. It was covered up in different ways until the truth came out. The government had to own what had happened. That has to be the worst as a soldier, I would think, that you killed one of your own. Somebody in the trenches with you. That's what Peter is saying to them. This was a case of mistaken identity. This was, unbeknownst to you, friendly fire. You killed your Lord. That leads to the last point, to the last reason. Call on the name of the Lord because you killed Jesus. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest, brothers, what shall we do? That word cut to the heart means pierced. It is a play on words by Dr. Luke who wrote the book of Acts. They were pierced to the heart because they pierced Jesus. That's what Luke is saying. You say, Jerry, I, I wasn't there. I didn't kill him. I would say to you that Jesus was killed by two things. He was killed by soldiers who nailed him with spikes to a cross. He was killed by my sin and yours. Our sin demanded that sacrifice. Until we see the awfulness of our sin, we will not appreciate the awfulness of Jesus' death. So when they're cut to the part, how does Peter respond? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does Peter mean? You will receive help for your past, that's forgiveness, and hope for your future, that's the Holy Spirit. God's going to wipe your past away. That's why when people come to Christianity with all of their struggles and their doubts and their fears and, and, and their shame, the hope of it is that God, through Christ, wipes away your past. He cleans it. He gives you a clean slate. You start over just as if you had never sinned. But he doesn't abandon you. He gives you hope for your future, for all the struggles you have with sin, for all the difficulties. But what about me? That's Peter to them. You say, look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's us. We, the Gentiles, non-Jews, we're far off. We were. Now we're not everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I want to pause here for a moment. No time to deal in full with this. But here we see an interesting paradox that we referenced a moment ago. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Peter says you're saved 
because, what does he say? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You say, how is it? How is it that God calls people, but people call God? It is the sovereignty of God, his control, his, his work in the world, and his control over all of life. It is the free will of man, the responsibility of man and woman to respond to the sovereign call of God. You say, Jerry, I, I don't understand that. Neither do I. I don't get that. Neither do I. The great preacher Spurgeon said, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God, God's control, and the free will of man? And Spurgeon's response was brilliant. I don't see a need to reconcile great friends. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man, God sovereignly calls men and women to himself, boys and girls to himself in faith, and we deliberately respond to that call. Let me give you a much less important reality or illustration of this. I, many of you know, I guess I'm a Duke fan, and some of you don't like me for it. It really beats being a Carolina fan this year, I'll tell you that. But I'm a Duke fan. Well, Duke's first loss came at home from a no-name team, Stephen something Austin School. A last-second layup. I think it went into overtime. Duke lost. And so Trent and I were talking about it. We're all Duke fans in our house, and we were talking about it. And Trent said, I can't believe, I can't believe they lost to that school. Da, 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 da. And I said, Trent, that was the divine, sovereignly ordained will of God for Duke to lose. <laughs> he looked at me like, why are you in preacher mode? <laughs> I said, Trent, all right, do you know, have you read about the kid who hit the shot? He said, what do you mean? Well, he lived in the Bahamas. His family lives there. And when the hurricanes hit, they decimated his house. His father is a pastor, destroyed his church. So the school, Stephen, I think F. Austin, whatever it is, that school had started a GoFundMe with the goal of $20,000 toward the repair of the home and the church. After that kid hit that shot, the day Trent and I were having the conversation, that fund, that day, I don't know where it is now, stood at $162,000. Why? Mad Carolina fans. <laughs> if your team can't win, celebrate when mine loses. Go fund me. That's what happened. I said, Trent, all these Carolina fans were like, hey, we got something to celebrate. And so they, go, they went and did the GoFundMe. But seriously, God's sovereignty, stupid little basketball game, doesn't matter. But is God working in that way? Probably. God calls. We call. I don't know how these meet, but they do. What do I do now? 
Verse 40 says, and with many other words, we don't get those, Luke didn't record them. He, Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, he summarized them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And that day, 3,000 said, yes, 3,000. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So what do I do now? Save yourself from this crooked generation. You say, well, Jerry, that sounds rather judgmental. Please hear me. You cannot come to Jesus without walking away from something or someone. You'll have to. They had to walk away from moms and dads and brothers and sisters who yelled, crucify him. They had to walk away from family who were Jews who did not believe Jesus was who Peter said he was. That day when 3,000 came to Christ, there were thousands more who did not. What I'm saying to you this morning is that if you decide to follow Christ, I did youth ministry for several years. And I would, I would talk about if you're 22 or younger, you'll, you'll have to go against the flow. I would say today, if you're a young adult, if you're 30 and younger, you will have to say no to something or someone. It is countercultural to follow Jesus. It is counterintuitive to follow Jesus. You will have to say no. I closed with this, didn't share it in the early service. Trent got in the truck Thursday night after we got beat down in basketball. So we're heading up the road, not knowing what he's going to say. And he says, got to tell you what happened in the locker room. This was back at McDowell. I said, son, what happened? He said, well, mom, my wife Wendy had called and Wendy's grandmother who lives with us is right now in a nursing facility and she wanted to talk to Trent and so she just called in, FaceTimed. And they hung up and the guy said, who's that? And Trent explained who Gogo was, how sick Gogo was. And they said, oh, that's sad. And Trent said, oh, no, it isn't. No, Gogo's body is tired. She's going to get a brand new body. That isn't sad. And they looked at him, and he said, Gogo's going to heaven. He's never done this before. He's never. And he said, and when you all die, you're either going to heaven or hell yourselves. He said they kind of leaned in. He said, let me tell you about some things happening in the world right now. He started talking about some things and current events and stuff like that. He said, Jesus is coming back. I promise you he is. He said, let me tell you about heaven. He talked about heaven. Let me tell you about hell. He talked about hell and the realities of it. He said, their time wound up. They had to go. He said, they're going out. One of the players pulled him to the side and said, listen, I've never heard this before. But I've got some brothers and sisters. I cannot imagine them going to hell. Can we talk more? Trent was like, yeah. So another kid who knows the Lord came out of the tent said, Trent, I'll tell you what. He said, let's invite them all to your house Saturday night. 
He said, your parents can feed them. We'll get them to church on Sunday morning and get them saved. That's how he said it. And Trent's like, sounds like a plan to me. So he did. Several of them showed up last night. 11 P. They looked at Trent and said, we doing church in the morning? Trent said, yeah. And they said, we're out. And they left. Trent came in. He just dropped his head. And he said, I cannot believe it. I cannot believe it. I cannot believe it. Once he left, we talked a bit. I said to Wendy, that's his first gospel rejection. And that's good for him. That's good for him. That's what Peter is saying. Separate yourself. Doesn't mean you're better than at all. It just means you're other than. Would you bow your heads? Our team is going to come. We're going to sing an old hymn. Our staff will be here to pray with you. This morning, now this afternoon, I want you to come as the Holy Spirit moves you. Come because as some did in the early service, you've never called on the name of the Lord and you realize that you're lost without Christ and you need to receive him as your Savior. Come as some did in the early service because you have wandered away from him and you need to come back. Come as some did in the early service because like Trent, there's somebody on your heart for whom you're burdened. They need to come to Jesus. We don't always do an invitation here. As a matter of fact, maybe once every four or five weeks we do what we're doing today. It's very deliberate. Very much goes with Peter's sermon in mind too. Now, we also have a room to the right. And if you need more prayer beyond what happens down here, we'll go there. Folks are there as well. We're serious about praying with you and for you. Would you stand? You come as the Spirit moves you this morning.